Chapter Seven of the Wife of the Secretary of State. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julia Wise. The Wife of the Secretary of State by Ella Middleton Tybout. Chapter Seven. The moon is a long way from the earth, yet it sometimes looks near at hand and almost within reach. Occasionally, also, one falls victim to its glamour, and when under a spell of its enchantment forgets that there is such a thing as distance. Then gradually the soft light vanishes. The earth is no longer a place beautiful, but degenerates into a treadmill where one must keep moving or fall by the wayside, and the moon itself is discovered to be merely a luminous body, with no power of enchantment whatever. In short, the spell is broken, and the distance very apparent. As David Lee awoke the morning after Mrs. Redmond's ball, he was con conscious of a vague sensation of guiding a slender, white-gowned figure through a crowded room to the dreamy rhythm of a well-played waltz. This agreeable vision was gradually replaced by the unpleasant reality that the furnace made not the slightest impression on Mrs. Colson's north room, and that breakfast was in progress below. An odor of beefsteak wafted to his unwilling nostrils aided him in reaching the latter conclusion and he also believed the steak to be accompanied by fried potatoes. Plainly it was time for the secretary's secretary to be up and doing, for another day it announced itself, and the doors of the State Department would shortly be unlocked, ready for the usual routine. The click of the typewriter would sound instead of the voice of the violin, office furniture and accessories would replace the flower-decked ballroom, and politicians with silk hats and immaculate waistcoats would claim his attention instead of Isabel Byrd in her dainty gown. Isabel, who, because of her gray eyes with their long black lashes, and for other inscrutable reasons, suddenly became the one girl in his small world, as he inscribed his name on her program, and waited with inconcealed impatience for his dance. Isabel, last night a delightful vision, but a girl, and therefore to be one. This morning very much the daughter of Senator Byrd, and quite out of the question. At first his recollections of the previous night were vaguely centered around the one face and figure, but as he opened his eyes and mechanically sat upright, Lee was overwhelmed by a sudden rush of memory. Certain facts flashed across his mind with startling distinctness, and he sank down among the pillows, turning his back upon the gray light of the winter morning from which he would fain retire. "'Past eight, Mr. Lee?' This announcement was accompanied by a knock on the door, repeated after a silent interval, in a slightly more imperative manner. "'And anybody'd think to hear the grumpiness of him "'that it was meself asking a favor instead of doing one,' "'muttered Nora with an indignant toss of her head "'as she retreated after eliciting a brief but pungent response from within. "'It was a rather pale, depressed-looking young man "'who troubled Mrs. Colson for a cup of strong coffee "'some fifteen minutes later and swallowed it hastily "'with no apparent realization of the fact that it was near the boiling point. "'What do you think his throat is made of?' inquired Mrs. Colson generally, as David left the table after a hurried pretext at breakfast. "'The same material as your own, I suppose,' returned Miss Jackson tartly, fingering and refusing several pieces of bread preparatory to putting up her lunch. Miss Jackson's manners, like her shoes, were somehow what down at the heel this morning. The prospect of the long hours which must be passed in the seclusion of the Treasury Department lent an acidity to her whole aspect, and she buttered her bread disdainfully, as though repudiating any personal connection therewith. "'Don't you think,' 
remarked Mrs. Colson, sotto voce, as Miss Jackson in turn sought the front door. The dear Miss Jackson looks very old and peaked this winter. And there was a general murmur of assent from Miss Jackson's friends and associates. At the State Department much was waiting for willing or unwilling hands to do. The secretary was late in arriving, and this daily mountain of mail accumulated on his desk awaiting his signature. Lee turned it over meditatively. Here were routine matters prepared by various branches of the department, and apparently of no particular interest to the private secretary, for he passed them by with a casual glance. Here, too, was the incoming mail, and he looked through it also, sifting it rapidly and laying certain papers aside for the personal attention of the secretary. Taking various others to his own desk in the small adjoining room, he began to dispose of them mechanically, but suddenly he paused, and resting his arms on the desk, bowed his head upon them. "'There must be some way out of it,' he ejaculated aloud. "'Some other way.' It was diplomatic day, and the representatives of various countries began to assemble in the room set apart for their use before the secretary arrived. He came in hastily, accompanied by Senator Byrd. "'You say the President demands an explanation?' observed the latter, as they entered. "'He demands the papers themselves,' replied Mr. Redmond, in a troubled voice. "'He says their disappearance is incredible.' "'I almost think he believes—' "'No,' interrupted the senator hastily. "'Impossible.' "'His manner was extremely frigid,' continued the secretary, unlocking a drawer in his desk. "'He declined to discuss the Rustchuk matter, but gave me this synopsis of the policy he desired to pursue, remarking that it was difficult to handle a case of this sort from memory alone, and he said he trusted I would make an effort to produce the other papers and draw up a memorandum for him containing a few facts— as he disliked dealing in generalities and wanted to issue his ultimatum. And his policy? The secretary's fingers tapped nervously against a long envelope he drew from his pocket, and he sank wearily into the brown leather chair beside his desk before replying. It means, he said slowly, if he persists, and I think he will, war with Russia, and eventually with England. It means needless sacrifice of life, and unnecessary expenditure of money fatherless children, tears, and the bitterness of desolation to many women, and perhaps a little glory for a favored few. That is what the President's policy means to the country. Lee turned uneasily in his swivel chair. He was in plain sight from the adjoining room, but his presence was overlooked or ignored by both men, and the secretary began to speak again in short, jerky sentences, as though simply voicing his thoughts. If we had been given time, time to negotiate further— if we conceded certain points, even while insisting upon our rights, I meant to mediate, to be conciliatory, I meant to keep the peace. The country is unprepared, said Senator Byrd gravely. War means defeat and humiliation, not victory and triumph. Can you not use your influence? My influence, said the secretary quietly, vanished with the Rustchuk papers. The president was not himself today. His manner was extraordinary, to say the least. I don't like it, Bird. I don't like it. Well, said Senator Bird, taking up his hat, we must do what we can to avert trouble. At least we will go slowly. The Senate will not favor anything precipitate, but I am not so sure about the House. However, I will see Rivers and Grimes, and we will keep it quiet for a few weeks longer if possible. Meanwhile, the other papers may turn up. The plan of defense of New York Harbor is missing, said the Secretary slowly. Do you realize what that means just now? And we have no idea. What is it, Mr. Lee? 
for the private secretary had approached his chief with a hesitating reminder of the waiting diplomats. "'Yes, certainly,' responded the secretary, putting the envelope he held into the open drawer and turning the key. "'I should have remembered, and I have not even looked at my morning's mail.' He sighed impatiently, then rose and squared his shoulders resolutely. "'I will receive the ambassador from Great Britain,' he announced as he passed into the long, ebony-trimmed reception room. An hour later, Lee was conscious of a subdued rustle in the secretary's office, accompanied by a subtle perfume, and turning hastily, beheld as much of Miss Isabel Bird as the large sable muff she carried would permit. "'Dear me,' remarked that young person, as he came quickly forward, "'what a very serious sort of place! I really feel as though I were in church and should whisper.' "'And you look grave and important enough, Mr. Lee, to officiate as the lay-reader. "'Is it possible that you actually danced with me last night?' "'Wasn't it a jolly ball?' said Lee eagerly, boyish and attractive in an instant. "'I hope, Miss Bird, you are not tired this morning. You look as fit as possible.' Isabel laughed and remarked that she had come down to meet her father, but believed he had forgotten his appointment. "'Why?' said David, smiling. "'The senator has been here and gone up to the capital. I fear he did forget, Miss Bird.' "'In that case,' she replied, taking up her muff, "'I won't wait any longer. "'Perhaps, Mr. Lee, you can tell me how to find the State Department Library? "'I wanted to look up something there, and Father was going to help me. "'It's awfully tiresome in him to forget. "'I haven't a bit of sense about doing such things for myself.' "'If I could be of any assistance,' began David eagerly, "'I should be only too glad. "'Oh, no, Miss Bird,' as she made a faint protest, "'I really have plenty of time. There is no reason I should not help you.' The deceitful moon again seemed almost within reach as the swing door closed behind him, and he touched the button for the elevator, which would lift him far above such mundane trifles as official correspondence and a threatened international crisis. Behind the brass screen in the now empty room, the wood fire snapped and crackled cheerfully. The sunlight shone through the large south windows, gilding even the sober bindings of the corpulent volumes of law and jurisprudence in the revolving bookcase, and touching gently the secretary's pens placed in an orderly row on their rack, his brown leather chair, and the bronze paperweight on the blotter. But the full force of the sun was concentrated upon the handle of the key the secretary had in the upper right-hand drawer of his desk, which shone and twinkled irresistibly audaciously drawing attention to itself and seeming to proclaim to whom it might concern here i am ready and waiting come and turn me to the secretary seated at the head of a long ebony trim table the morning was interminable he had received the ambassador from great britain and had managed so well that the latter had retired pleased with himself and the world in general the chinese minister too had paid his respects and delivered a message from his sovereign containing protestations of friendship and endless fidelity, and the secretary had replied in kind. Lesser lights in the diplomatic world called and delivered their credentials or brought documents from their respective governments. The ambassador from Russia had also called. It seemed to the secretary, as he pondered anxiously over the last-minute interview, that it was not entirely satisfactory. There had been an assertive manner about his visitor, as unwelcome as it was unexpected, and the request he preferred seemed to assume the nature of a demand when calmly considered afterward. So the lines on the secretary's forehead deepened as he sat abstractedly in the long, handsome room, and the minutes passed unnoticed. Suddenly he became aware of a quick rustle of skirts, and two soft hands were clasped over his eyes. Guess! 
said a voice close to his ear. Guess which country I represent. Why, Estelle, he exclaimed in accents which would have surprised the Russian minister. What brings you here? And how very pretty you look, my dear. Do I, said Mrs. Redmond, immediately consulting the mirror. I am so glad. I like to look my very best when I come to see you. But suppose someone else had come in. They're all gone, John, long ago. I waited ages all alone out in your office, and you were in such a brown study you never heard me open the door behind you. Every now and then I looked in. Now I want something. Can you guess what? Money, hazarded the secretary in the light of past experience. No, said Mrs. Redmond, laughing. Not this time. Try again. I am not good at guessing. Nor at remembering. Don't you know this is our anniversary? We were married in April, said the secretary, smiling. I remember it very well, the 16th. This is December. Have you forgotten that December day in Paris when we dined in the Latin Quarter? No, said the secretary, drawing her nearer to him. No, Estelle, certainly not. The butter without salt, she continued breathlessly. The dear old dingy room and the white wine, tasting like vinegar, he supplemented. I remember. It tasted like nectar to me, she said dreamily. And afterwards, oh, John, you do remember. Of course, he said quickly. Why, Estelle, how could I forget? You have never regretted it, John. I was poor and obscure and lonely. Sometimes I think you asked me out of pity. Estelle, said the secretary, looking earnestly into her eyes, listen to me. My only pleasure in life, my only happiness, is centered in you. Without you I should not care to live. The wonder is, child, that you should love so old a man. Well, I do, said Mrs. Redmond, between tears and laughter. And dear me, how serious we have grown. What I came for was to take you out with me. I know a little French pension, and we can eat lunch there all by ourselves. I meant to order just what we had that day. I remember it all, even the salad. And so do I, said the secretary, laughing and opening the door. I am charmed to lunch with you, Mrs. Redmond, although I don't recall the viands with a marked degree of pleasure. And afterwards, said Mrs. Redmond softly, we will go home together. You must not come back here today. It is mine. We'll be comfy and happy. You shall sit and smoke on one side of the fire, and I'll sit there, too, on the same side, and we'll talk about Paris and Venice and the old days. Come, John. They passed into the private office just as the outer door opened to admit David Lee, and Mrs. Redmond paused to greet him while her husband put on his overcoat. "'Mr. Lee,' said the secretary, after a cursory glance at his desk, "'I am going out, and I shall not return this afternoon. The assistant secretary will sign.' A sudden flash of light from the shining key caught his eye, and he removed it from the drawer and placed it on his key ring. Mrs. Redmond moved towards the door and beckoned impatiently. "'You will please look over my mail, Mr. Lee,' continued the secretary, as he joined his wife, "'and I don't think there is anything else to keep you here this afternoon. No doubt you can find good use for the time elsewhere.' He nodded kindly as he closed the door, but his private secretary stood stupidly in the centre of the room, gazing at the desk with its pile of papers and empty chair. Something white lay on the floor at his feet, and he stooped to pick it up. It proved to be a dainty handkerchief, perfumed and embroidered. Lee folded it carefully as he crossed the room, and looked out of the window over the broad expanse of the mall, with eyes which saw nothing of the wintry landscape. I was gone for two hours, 
he remarked to an inquisitive sparrow which sought shelter from the wind on the stone window-sill. Two whole hours. End of chapter 7